0: And for the rest of us, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Genesis. We are in chapter 19. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We'd love to bring you a Bible. Chapter 19 is a big chapter. We're going to look at all of it. My guess is you've heard the saying that history... Has a way of repeating itself, and we sort of see this playing out in lots of different experiences or a lot of different events. So, in 1912, the Titanic sank, but that wasn't the first boat to sink, nor would it be the last. 2019, COVID hit the world stage, but that would not be the first virus, nor would it be the last virus technologies like come on the scene they like change the world but we all know that technologies become outdated and new technology rises up and replaces old technology history has a way of replacing itself we we even see this in fashion i don't know if you're aware of this but women are wearing baggy pants scrunchies and fanny packs you guys see this like no shame at all like the 90s is like reinventing itself before our very eyes History has a way of repeating itself. But what about the bad parts of history? What about the aspects of history that we don't want to repeat? That we want to forget? That we want to rewrite? We, we have this saying that like history has a way of repeating itself. But if you really think about it, if you like sit in the reality of that, it's pretty unsettling. what do we do how do you have hope when it feels like life is a is a long song set on repeat today's text i'm gonna be frank with you all is a dark text it is like a halloween text only this is darker than anything alfred hitchcock could ever write this is one of those dark texts. This is one of those texts that you read it as a pastor and you're going through it and you're like, yeah, this really means what it says here. You're like, oh, this is the Sunday I get canceled. Like that's the, these are one of these texts before us. And just as a complete aside, this is why as a church, we preach the books of the Bible in succession so that, you know, the, the cowardly lion in me or any of us, we got to grapple with this. This text is good news for us. But it's a dark text today. And there really is no reprieve. I I feel like today I'm going to be Virgil and Dante's Inferno. We're just going to go into hell together. That's the darkness of this text. And yet, at the same time, I'm convinced, not just theologically, but as I've studied this, I'm convinced that there is really good news for us in chapter 19 of Genesis. Really good news that if we don't blink, or if we we don't just kind of divert our attention for a moment, that there is hope, there is comfort, there is good news, even in the darkness of Genesis 19. This fall, we're studying the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis, and today we arrive at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the story that my guess is you are all familiar with. And yet, as dark as this text is, as dark as this story gets, as honest as this story kind of rolls out, I just want us all to take heart that God remembers the faithful. That is the big idea that is behind me. As dark as it gets, God remembers the faithful. That's what we're going to look at, but I just want to let you know that 90% Is darkness bad news? Maybe 95% is darkness bad news? And only really in one verse is there a reprieve of hope. So turn with me to chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 1 and go to verse 11. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to, came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with him. Then they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and drew him near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they were themselves out, groping for the door. Sheesh. Part one. Scene one. Maybe we can just call this... The darkness of society, and we're gonna kind of descend darker and darker and darker. This is the darkness of a society. The two angels that we met last week in chapter eighteen, they arrive in Sodom, and they're on a mission to discover if Sodom and Gomorrah and, and the surrounding kind of area, the surrounding valley, is indeed wicked, and indeed in need of God's judgment. And eventually these two guests they arrive at the sort of estate of Lot. And they are invited by Lot to, as kind of outsiders, just like Abraham did. Lot goes, Hey, why don't you come and eat? You know, know, put your feet up, take a shower, and be my guest in my home, and then you can go about your way. But these angels are like, Ah, you know, we don't want to inconvenience you. We'd rather not spend some money on a hotel. We'll we'll just, we brought tents, We'll, we'll just hang out in the town square. And Lot knows that's a bad idea. And he's insistent, no, you must stay at my house. To which eventually they agree. Eventually dinner arrives, but so do some men. And notice how they're described. They're men from the city. They're described as both old and young, and actually it just says all of the men. So, so here's the entire city, both old and men, old and young, and they just arrive at Lot's house to appease their appetites but not their appetites for food, their appetite for lust. They surround the house and they demand that Lot bring out these two men. And instantly their intentions become clear because they want to know them. And that is shorthand exactly what you think it is. The town wants to show their hospitality to outsiders by sexually abusing these outsiders. I told you guys, this is going to be dark. Now, to, to Lot's credit, he, he goes out there and he tries to reason with them. He tries to protect his guests. He's like, you guys, these guests are under my protection. They're under my roof. Go away. Do not do this wicked thing. You need to behave yourself. But lust that has arisen in one man's house, imagine how difficult it is. It's an entire mob that have a single purpose in mind. What is Lot going to do? He's got no shot to push the mob aside Except for one idea that he has. He's got two daughters. And so he decides to compromise. He decides to exchange his two daughters for these two men. He says, Take my daughters, do with them whatever you please. And now some commentators, some people want to say, Well, these two girls are engaged. And so really, um, what Lot is doing is he's saying, Yeah, you can take my daughters because when. These men are going to realize, oh, they're engaged, which is closely linked in that culture with marriage, that they won't do anything to these women. He's like banking on the civility of Sodom. I don't think that that's the case here. Lot's in a hard, uh, kind of a, a hard spot, and yet any father knows that this is unspeakable. It's dark. It really is dark. Well, the, the mom refuses They are single-minded in their desire, and the mob is losing patience, but before they sort of make their move and start kind of getting violent on this, this house and try to drag the people out, they begin to mock Lot. And they're like, you're an outsider, Lot. Who do you think you are to like judge us, shame us, get on your hobby horse and look down at us? How dare you? I just love how honest, brutally honest the Bible is and how it gets in some ways the the psychology of humanity. Often, I don't know if you've experienced this yourself or with someone else, you you talk to someone maybe about a a, a vice or a sin, you try to gently, lovingly point something out in their life and how often this is the sort of defense mechanism that we have. The, The most biblically illiterate person in the world knows at least one Bible verse, don't they? Judge not. And so, now, eventually, after he can't talk them out of this, they begin to get violent, and the two angels grab Lot and pull them into the house and kind of deadbolt it. They have to intervene. And then the only way to get out of this is that the angels strike all of the men, from youngest to oldest, with blindness. And you're like, oh, that solves it. And yet, Verse 11, they're just like outside, still groping around, still trying to accomplish what they came out to accomplish. This is a dark story and text. It really is trying to get at the the darkness of Sodom, the darkness of Gomorrah, the darkness of society, the darkness of the human heart. The angels went down to Sodom and Gomorrah to, to find out if there was wickedness, and that is exactly what they found. Socially, the, the, the society sinned against uh, this family and these men because of their cruel inhospitality. But then they also sinned sexually, didn't they? Or at least attempted to. Now, s- sexual sin is nothing new. But I think one thing that is striking, I think one of the things that's most eerie and the darkest aspect of this story is just how normalized this behavior was in Genesis 19. Notice there's no like stigma. There's no social shame to what is going on here. Like the sting of the sin and evil that's going on has been pulled. Young and old, society is just filled and normalized this sort of behavior. A Lot, it seems, even expects this behavior. I think that's the most eerie aspect of this. But I fear it's sort of not just Sodom. Our, our ability to just kind of become familiar to, to normalize sin in general, but then as it relates to this story, the particularities of sexual sin. History has a re- way of repeating itself. I mean, this story, if you read Genesis 19 and you read the story of Noah, it's almost the same story. It's, there's an eerie similarity And in many ways, society in Noah's days just became, they just normalized sin. And you just keep reading. Isn't that what happened in the days of the judges? Isn't that what happened in the days of the prophets? It's not just Sodom. Go read 1 Corinthians this week and you'll realize in Paul's day, this was happening as well. And it's not just in biblical times. It's in all times. Even our times. Our times. I saw recently someone send something to me, and uh, it was a, um, a, a clip of a congresswoman who went to an evangelical prayer breakfast, and she was one of the speakers, and so she got up as a congresswoman, and she made a joke. She basically said, hey, I almost was late to the prayer breakfast because I was in bed with my fiance, and he wanted something and pulled me aside, and I said, no, no, no honey, I can't do that, I got to go to this prayer breakfast, I'll be home tonight to fulfill that desire. And she's like, oops, sorry, TMI. And you hear this eerie laughter. Now, the most interesting thing is, here's someone who is more politically savvy, more savvy than anyone who could read a room better than all of us, and yet, she couldn't read the room well enough to think that at a prayer breakfast, that probably is something you shouldn't share, probably not something you should just bring about, that's something that you should hide. And yet, sex outside of marriage has just become normalized. We don't expect anything less. The sort of sting of any sort of social stigma related to sexual shin in general has been taken out. Sin. One uh, author defines worldliness this way. Worldliness is just, sin, um, is just sin that society tries to make normal and righteousness that makes normal that they try to make as strange or abnormal. And that's the world we live in. And I think in in some ways, let me just say, before we move on to the kind of next descent into darkness, that if you're under 30, there is a, a huge push for you to just abandon a biblical sexual ethic. There is an enormous pressure to cave on this issue. That, that maybe if you're 67 or 80, you did not feel that pressure. But if you're under the age of 30, there is an enormous pressure on this um, issue. And I just want to encourage you, if you're under 30, and we all need this, but I'm just speaking to all you who are under 30, you need godly mentors who are older than you that as you're having those conversations at the lunch table as you're having those questions that are people are pushing against you as you're reading books and you need people godly women godly men to pull you out and to say to speak truth biblical truth to you get get a mentor and if you don't know where to find one i will find one for you so scene 1 the history that repeats itself in the darkness of Society, But now, kind of scene two, we have the darkness of destruction. Go with me to chapter, or uh, verse 12. Then the men said to Lod, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of, the, of this place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people have become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed, but he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the, angel, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside of the city. And as they brought him out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold... This city is near enough to flee, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. It is not a little one. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor, that I will not overthrow the city on which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zohor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zohor, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Scene two. The darkness of destruction. The angels have all the evidence they need. God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and the entire valley in light of their wickedness, in light of their sin. And the angels tell Lot to grab his family, anyone they know, and get out now. And so he goes to his son-in-laws and he's like, "You guys, we got, we got to go. We got, we got to get out of here." And the sons-in-laws are like, "You're joking. That's ridiculous." And so finally, the, the angels are like, All right, wh- whoever's here, just the two daughters and your wife, get out now. And then you read verse 16, two words that haunted me all week. Lot lingered. Lot lingered. And if you're just reading it, and you, many of you know how the story goes, and I kind of ruined it because I just read it, but if you're just going along, you're wondering, Is Lot and his family going to get out? How long is he going to linger? And you might wonder, in light of all this, why is he lingering in the first place? Well, just put yourself in Lot's shoes. Lot built a life in Sodom. He built an estate for himself. And verse 1 tells us that he was found at the city gate, which means he's an important person in the city. So he's pulled himself up by his bootstraps. He's made a name for himself. He has become an, gone from an outsider to an insider. He's made a place in this world. He has created an empire of dirt. And these angels are saying, you got to abandon it all. Remember, Lot's rich, or at least he was rich. He's got to leave it all just to save himself. Lot lingered. He lingered. Guys, that's all of us. How easy it is to linger, to tinker, to to hear the the call to to run from your sin, to, to run to Jesus in light of your sin, and yet we sometimes linger. We tinker. It's hard to leave your old life. It's hard to leave your old patterns. Your old pleasures. Lot lingered. And it almost cost him his life. But fortunately for him, which is maybe not the case for everyone, Lot's got two angels that literally pull him out of the city. By the sheer mercy of God. uh, Lot and his family are seized and the two daughters and they bring him outside of the city and then finally when they're outside of the city once more the the family is told to run. Run to the hills, run to the mountains, flee, get out of here. And did you notice what Lot says? Lot goes, I'm tired. Like I forgot my sketchers, my running shoes at home. Like I I really don't want to run 20 miles up to the mountains. That is exhausting. What about that little city? I know that little city it's just a little one. I know it's supposed to be destroyed as well. It's like a little Sodom, but like, can I have it? Can I just go there? It's only 10 miles, not 20 miles. He's like negotiating. It was a little Sodom. It was supposed to be destroyed in the valley as well. And yet, Lot's like, I know I can't have Sodom and Gomorrah. That's going to be destroyed. But I want a little something for myself. A little city where I can remake the mountains are too terrifying. Can I have a little Sodom? Just a little one. What's well, asking Can I have just a little bit of my old life? Can I have a little bit of the darkness? Can I have a little bit of Sodom? Can I have a little bit of that society? I mean, not, not all of it. It's pretty bad. It's real, real bad. He even says it's wickedly bad. But just a little one. A little taste. A little compromise. A little sin. Brothers, sisters, be afraid of the little ones, the little compromises. I was reading this past week, and this is a better illustration than I can come up with, but the church father, Augustine, had this illustration. He hypothetically was um, was picturing two men talking to each other. And Augustine said this. He said, "A a man was having an argument with another man. And one man was like uh, slapping a fly that was like pestering him. And the annoying man that the fly was attacking, he said, the devil created that fly. It was so annoying. And then the other man in light of that said, well, if the devil created that fly, what about annoying worms? Did the devil create annoying worms? And the man goes, well, of course he did. Worms are really annoying. And he goes, okay. Well, if he created The flies, if the devil created worms, what about that annoying crow over there? And the man's like, well, I suppose crows too. And he said, well, what about man? Exceedingly annoying. Did the devil create man too? And then Augustine wrote this about this sort of fictional conversation. He says, by one admission, the admission that the devil is the creator of the fly, a man came to believe that the devil was actually the creator. Just one small error in your mind, just one small evil thought in your heart, just one small sin in your hand, just one small omission in your thinking, and who knows where it might take you, writes Augustine. Beware the little ones, the little compromises, the little errors, the small vices. I mean, adultery doesn't begin in the bedroom. It begins in a compromised heart. Well, Lot is allowed for some reason to flee to Zohor. And as they arrive, the sun goes dark. And that's when judgment falls on Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire and acid fall from the heavens, pushed by wind. And notice the totality of the destruction, right? Crops and people, land, animals, leaves, buildings, society, all of it destroyed. I told you guys this is going to be dark. Not just even metaphorically, but literally dark. I mean, I don't even know if we're meant to picture all of it. But it is a picture of hell. Actually, later on, writers in the New Testament are going to take this picture and apply it to hell itself. But, but then the section ends with one last dark moment. Lot's wife, she, she didn't listen. She somehow was behind And she turned, and I don't think it's like she turned like Medusa and all of a sudden was turned to stone like that. I I, I think it's she was far behind them as they were running to Zohor because she lingered. She actually stayed back. She ran back. She couldn't give up Sodom and Gomorrah and was swept away in God's judgment, turned into a pillar of salt. Lot lingered, Lot compromised, and Lot's wife couldn't leave behind her old life, and it cost her her life. Now, you're like, how do we think, how do we apply, like, what do we, what do, we do with texts like this? Well, one of the things you need to do is realize that the Bible interprets the Bible. And in the New Testament, Jesus himself tells us how we're supposed to look at this story and this, the darkness of this judgment. In Luke 17... Aaron wrote, read a part of it. He didn't read what I'm going to mention here. But Jesus is talking about the judgment to come, the future judgment to come at Christ's second a coming. And Jesus says three words. Remember Lot's wife. Not remember Isaac, not remember Abraham, not remember Sarah, remember Lot's wife. Why? Have you ever noticed that? You've ever been like, why are we meant to... Remember Lot's wife. What's the point and purpose of Lot's wife? What's the point and purpose of Genesis 19? What's the point and purpose of this story for our life? Jesus says you need to remember Lot's wife because Sodom and Gomorrah, pictorially, is meant to point us to not just the judgment that came on them, it's meant to point us to another judgment. Because the judgment that came on Sodom and Gomorrah was devastating, but the judgment that Jesus is talking about is an everlasting judgment. And he says... Remember Lot's wife. He goes on to say, Jesus does, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. Genesis 19 is dark, but you ever read Revelation 19? The judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah was total, but the judgment at the end of times will be everlasting. Everlasting. And God is just, and his justice demands it. Remember Lot's wife. She tried to keep her life and lost it. Remember Lot's wife. The darkness of this story is meant to, I think, awaken us to the reality that, as bad as it got in Sodom and Gomorrah, it could be worse. It's meant to awaken us that it's not too late if you are still breathing, it's not too late to turn to Jesus. He is the provision. In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, there was a provision. The angels provided a way out for Lot. And Jesus is saying there's a way out too. A way out of this judgment. And it's in the provision brought by Jesus Christ himself. Remember Lot's wife. But we're not out of the darkness yet. We move to one last scene of darkness. Darkness. Verse 30, we move from the the darkness of society to the darkness of judgment and now the darkness of a cave. Verse 30, now Lot went up to Zohor and lived in the hills with his two daughters for he was afraid to live in Zohor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve uh, offspring for our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with, my fa- with our father. Let us make him drink wine tonight. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring for our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and and uh, called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called him his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Let's go home. Lot doesn't stay in Zohor long, does he? All we know is that he's afraid. I'm conjecturing, but I'm wondering if he's like in Zohor and he's like, You know, his neighbors like, "Aren't you? Aren't you? Weren't you in Sodom and Gomorrah?" Like, how did you get here? How did you survive? And so, for whatever reason, lots afraid to live in Zohor. He he, come he begged them, and then he gets there, and he realizes Zohor isn't all it's cracked up to be. And so he eventually ends up in the mountains. He ends up in a cave. So. You just see the descent of Lot. He starts off with his penthouse luxury, you know, great view in Vegas, and now he's in Desert Valley. Just he and his daughters. It's rock bottom. gets darker, doesn't it? Lot's daughters realize that they've got a problem. There's no men, and they're not going to be able to have kids. They want kids. They want a family. They want their line to keep going on. They want to kind of build a new society, a new community. So they come up with a plan. If you think about it, it's kind of, Genesis 19 is kind of bracketed by Lot's plan. We can call it Lot's indecent plan for his daughters and then it ends with the daughter's indecent plan for Lot. They're going to get dad drunk. And then they're going to lie with their dad. Once again, it means exactly what you think it means. And they're going to have children by way of their dad. Both become pregnant. It works back to back nights. And one is named Moab, and the other is named Ben Amin. And Moab is the father of the Moabites, and Ben Amin is the father of the Ammonites. And if you know anything, if you just keep reading your, your, your Bible, you know the Moabites and the Ammonites are a thorn in Israel's side. And those nations, those communities, all were birthed out of this cave. In some ways, Sodom was destroyed. But as one author put it, and I'm paraphrasing, there in that cave, Sodom was reborn. I mean, what a dark, sobering ending to the chapter. It really is a descent into darkness. But but if we're paying attention to Genesis, this has been Lot's kind of trajectory, hasn't it? He, He started off leaving Abraham and then he was pitching his tent outside of Sodom, and then inside of Sodom, and then taking a position in Sodom. He's just been descending that way. He has lost everything. He lost his home, his possessions, his son-in-laws, his wife. He's on the run, and he's just a shell of himself. First Noah, now Lot. The ending of the story of Noah ends very quickly. Eerily similar to the story of Lot. History has a way of repeating itself. But as dark as it gets, as sort of familiar as this, the brokenness of this world, the wickedness of this world, the evil of this world, as kind of familiar as it all sounds, there is a glimmer of hope. And it's right smack in the middle of the text. I skipped it. I wanted to hide it for you because now we're going to punch with hope. Go to verse 27. Right in the middle, there is hope. Verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and, and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God remembered Abraham. God remembered the faithful. As Sodom and Gomorrah go up in flames, Abraham goes up that same mountain in which he was talking to to the Lord in the last chapter, and he looks down and he sees the carnage, the destruction History was repeating itself, and yet as often as history repeats itself in the bad, in the evil, in the judgment, there's something else that's repeating itself, too, in this story. Abraham is seeing another aspect of how history repeats itself. Earlier in the Bible, we read this. In the story of Noah, which is kind of a very similar story of, just think about it, of Noah, evil in the world, destruction. We learn in Genesis 7 and 8 and 9 that God remembered Noah. And as a result of that, he was saved. And then God remembered Abraham and his family was saved too. God's mercy is also on repeat. And you just keep going. Years later, God remembered Joseph when he's sitting in a cell and he uses that in order to save Joseph's family in Egypt. God remembered Moses. And God used Moses to bring his people out of Egypt generations later. God remembered Samson. When Samson had no strength, God remembered Samson. And Samson did something to awaken Israel to The compromises that they were making with the Philistines. And then years later, God remembered a woman named Naomi, whose life had completely fallen apart. She lost everything except the only thing she had was a Moabite woman named Ruth. And God remembered. And that Moabitess, descendant of Lot, would be the great grandmother of David himself. God remembered. God remembers his promises. And years later, generations after David, God remembered a long-awaited promise that you see the, the butt of it here. That one day God will remember and he himself will take care of darkness itself. Death, evil, sin. God would take care of it all. I mean, the, the book of John starts off and it says that the light has come into the world, referencing Jesus, and the darkness has not over him. God remembered the cries of the world. God remembered the cries of the faithful and God conquered darkness by sending Jesus Christ into the world and conquered it by, in one sense, Jesus succumbing to darkness himself. Jesus being swept away by darkness. Jesus dying on a cross because God remembered his promise that the darkness in the human heart would one day be conquered. That God's own son would do the conquering. He would take our place. And this all happened because God remembered. And we who are on this side of the cross should take courage and be comforted because God still remembers That that if you hide yourself in Jesus, if you run from your sin and into God's provision in Jesus Christ, God continues to remember and his mercy is yours forevermore. History has a way of repeating itself in the bad, but there's two tracks to this album. On the B side, or on the, is the evil, but on the A side, the good side, history repeats itself and God continually perseveres his people and showers them with grace and mercy because He is going to conquer death and darkness and sin and evil and one day erase it all. Light will overcome darkness. And we're meant to read Genesis 19 in light of that. That at the end of the day, as dark as it gets, we're supposed to look sober-minded at it, realize that God will remember. And because he didn't forget his son, he will not forget our names as well. God remembers the faithful. Persevere. Even as we live in a world where darkness exists, persevere until a second coming when darkness forever will be gone. Let's pray. Lord, we we acknowledge that there's so much that is out of our control. There is so much in which we don't know what to do. We lack wisdom in so many ways we read John 17 and Jesus' high priestly pray that says uh, that you haven't called us out of the world but that we would persevere in light of the evil one. Lord, you have a role for us, a prophetic role to preach the gospel. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would use the faithfulness of your word, the faithfulness of the gospel, the faithfulness of these men and women in order to point men and women young and old, to run from the Sodoms of our life and into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ and his beautiful kingdom and to do so and to not to linger. Lord, help us to do that. Awaken us to any darkness in us that we might flee from it. Repent and find your grace, we pray. And we pray in this, in your son's name, amen.